is Mark Dundas, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to episode 3.15 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Spring is in the air, and the corn harvest is upon many mountainous regions. Timing is crucial to stay out of harm's way with rising avalanche hazard related to warming temperatures later in the day. Continue to stay vigilant in the backcountry even as many avalanche centers will be closing their doors soon if they haven't already. I've got a few more episodes for the 2018-2019 season and I will continue to share these excellent interviews with all the listeners out there. So continue to listen, putting out episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month until I'm out running dry. So I think I've got four or five more out that I'll uh, be putting out here soon. I'm still reeling from an amazing trip to Europe with awesome skiing in Chamonix as well as a great trip to Zermatt with really good skiing um, in in the regions around the Matterhorn. They've got Gazex and Obelex exploders in so many start zones out there and seem to utilize the Daisy Bell. That certainly got me thinking about all the support from TES Gazex. Uh, for this show so thanks guys as france's bordeaux game is totally on point i sure did miss the northwest style beer that 10 barrel brewing does such a great job pumping out here in oregon thanks to 10 barrel for the support of this podcast as well i recorded this interview back in july on a visit to the flathead valley in montana our guest today is mark dundas who is a forecaster for the flathead avalanche center I'm pretty sure Mark has done just about every snow and avalanche related job that that area has to offer. He's been in the Flathead for 35 years and has a great sense of place in the mountains there. He references working for the railroad forecasting program in John F. Stevens Canyon. If you want to find out a little bit more about that program, make sure you go back and listen to episode 3.6 with Ted Steiner. Um, Ted ran that program for many years. And uh, I, th- I think is is starting to step back a little bit, but he certainly has some some great knowledge about the program there, and it's a pretty cool forecasting program. All right, without further ado, here we go. Drop it in with Mark Dundas. All right, welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely, welcome to the Flathead. Yeah, thanks for coming in here and checking us out. Yeah, this place is amazing. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't talk about it too much. <laughs> Probably don't want too many people knowing about it. Seems like a nice little secret gem you got up here in, in Montana. Yeah, I think you just hit it on a good weekend. Yeah. It's not normally like this. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Mark, I was hoping you could introduce yourself and talk about some of your past and current roles in the snow and avalanche arena. Sounds good. Um, started back in Colorado. And working as a ski patroller at the now defunct Bertha Pass ski area. At the same time, I was also 
able to both live and work at the Fraser Experimental Forest in Fraser, Colorado, which is uh, basically adjacent to the ski area. Um, both of those areas have a long history of avalanche and snow research. Um, they both started operating in about 1937. And in fact, uh, when the U.S. Forest Service started its research, avalanche research, it chose three different locations across the West for these research stations. Um, they started with Alta in the late 1940s for a, a intermountain snowpack. Then in 1950, they chose Berthoud Pass for the Continental Snowpack. And then a couple of years later, they opened up the Stevens Pass Washington site for your maritime snowpack. So a lot of great avalanche research has been done at Berthoud, and I just felt privileged to be there and be a part of it. Yeah, it was um, super cool to be able to drive to 11,370 feet, get out of your car and basically step into avalanche terrain. Um, saw lots of both natural and triggered avalanches. Um, the wind blows constantly there, so there was no shortage of wind slaps. Um, lots of depth horror. It was a great introduction for me. Yeah. What sort of research was going on at the Fraser Experimental Area? They're doing um, lots. They're really into the hydrology there, um, but they've been studying, you know, snow as it relates to hydrology for the whole time um, since the 30s. And when I was there, I was mostly, I was, I was actually working as a caretaker, um, so I had a place to stay. But the nice thing was, um, one of my requirements was I had to go to each weather station on the district once a week and collect data from that station and then bring it back and um, record the data and keep those weather stations rolling and it was a lot of fun it was a, it was a good time good experience cool so then then how long did you stay in colorado are you from colorado or i'm not i'm originally from western new york um moved out west though as soon as i could and started working for the national park service um when i was at berthoud unfortunately it was kind of the swan song for berthoud they mm. were they were going downhill um for folks that don't know berthoud is opened and closed numerous times over the years and I was there for the last hurrah and after about six years we closed up shop um, unfortunately the lifts had to be removed that was part of the Forest Service contract when we reopened so the lifts went away we started a snowcat ski company ran that for a couple of years um, at the same time we actually had an avalanche school so when the lifts were running, we had the avalanche school and we kept it going even when we had the snowcat operation. We were actually affiliated with REI. So we, we did numerous classes just through REI in Denver up at the pass. Um, but yeah, again, after a couple of years of that, we just couldn't make a go of it and uh, we had to shut down. And unfortunately, probably what was the demise of Berthoud was it was um, the season pass wars were going on in the front range at the time. So season passes that at one time were costing a lot of money were basically dirt cheap. Mm -hmm. And so essentially you can get a season pass for a couple hundred bucks to ski any of those resorts. And I always have this vivid memory of doing early morning avalanche control work 
high above the road and looking down at this stream of bumper to bumper traffic, driving past Berthed, driving down the hill to Winter Park and nobody would pull in our parking lot. And I always was just, we all were always shocked that these people would rather sit in line, spend money on gas, waste their time, and then ski with 12 or 14,000 other people when they could be up at birth at skiing with two or 300 other people. Wow. So, yeah, but we, we basically, we had to close her down. And, uh, so then I had to find a place to go and I'd been working up in Glacier for a number of years. So I decided to give the flathead a try and it was an opportune time to come up here because Blaze Reardon was just starting up the avalanche program on the spring opening of the Going to the Sun Road in Glacier. Ted Steiner was uh, just starting the Burlington Northern Santa Fe avalanche program. And so I was very fortunate to get in with both of those guys. Um, ended up working on the Sun Road for seven years, worked with Ted for 10 years, uh, ski patrolled at the local mountain. And then over the last three years, I've been with the Flathead Avalanche Center. Awesome. Seems like quite the colorful career in the avalanche world. It's been good. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your experiences forecasting for the railroad, the Burlington Northern Santa Fe that runs through here, and a little bit more about, about that program if you sure. want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, really neat spot. Um the original rail line went through um, what's called John F. Stevens Canyon back in 1892. That was the Great Northern Railroad, which today is owned by the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. Um, right off the bat, they had problems with avalanches. And I believe over a dozen people were killed between 1892 and 1930. Um, numerous snowsheds have been built up there to um, help mitigate the, the danger a bit, but there's still quite a high avalanche hazard index up in that area. Um, 2000, there was no avalanche program up until about 2004. Um, in January of that year, an avalanche came down and hit an empty grain train that was traveling down the pass. It derailed a number of cars. Uh, the folks that were on the train got out to check out what had just happened. When they were outside the train, another avalanche came down from a different path and hit hit the train. A total of 15 rail cars were knocked off the road or off the rail. And that was the start of the BNSF avalanche program. Yeah, and um, they hired Dave Hamry from the Alaska Railroad to set up and oversee the program. He, he had the contract in his man on the ground. He immediately hired Ted Steiner to do that. And it's really cool that, um, Ted had a chance to basically build a program from scratch and he's, he's worked really hard. He's done a wonderful job up there. Um, it's, it's a dynamic place. It was originally, this program was originally designed by Dave, to use explosives to mitigate the hazard. Unfortunately, most of the avalanche paths originate in Glacier Park, and there was a lot of opposition, both from Park Service personnel, but also from the public for using explosives. 
So Burlington Northern backed away from the explosive use um, and got into more of a forecasting. And it's it's a little dicey, you know, when you when you're up there and it's pouring rain and you still have trains running through the canyon. Um, it's it's really tough to shut the rail down because when you this is an east west line that goes from coast to coast. And when you shut it down, it just backs up train traffic in both directions. And it's amazingly expensive to shut the rail down. But we do that occasionally or have done that occasionally um, when it's needed. Uh, fortunately, um, the Daisy Bell has arrived. And the Daisy Bell basically um, is this hydrogen cylinder that um, sends out a pressure wave or fires a pressure wave at the snowpack to start avalanches. And the Park Service likes the Daisy Bell. Hmm. So now that we have the Daisy Bell, um, we're starting to use that a little bit more, um, which is helping things out. But unfortunately, you, you're relying on a helicopter to carry that and to help deploy it. And often when the storms are raging, you just can't fly. And so sometimes it's a little too late by the time you get it up in the air. Sure. Yeah, originally um, Dave wanted artillery, but that that didn't happen, and that would have that would have helped during the big storm events. But so you mentioned a couple snowsheds. Did have, have they built some more since the uh, beginning of the avalanche program there? Or? No, they haven't, and that's that is on the list. Uh -huh. um, the Park Service would love to see them build more snowsheds. Um, building snowsheds is very expensive whether these snowsheds will be extended or not in the near future is, uh, is something we don't know. Right. Yep. Um, there's quite a few feet of snowsheds. There's quite a few snowsheds up there. But what's happened over the years is these paths have changed their trim line a little bit. And now what is happening is sometimes they're going around the shed or at least um, one end of the shed is compromised. Sure. Yep. Gotcha. So what did your day-to-day -day work look like when you were working for the railroad? Um, just, just out digging pits? Yep, and yep. we were out um, just touring around mm -hmm. above the sheds, above the rail, um, just getting a sense for the snow. And we would, um, Ted developed a, a railroad avalanche danger scale, similar to what um, most avalanche centers use, except that it's just different terminology. And basically it goes from one to five, like your typical scale does. But um, as you increase numbers, you start to get restrictions for um, workers along the rail line. And then eventually the restrictions go to the actual trains themselves. Mm. Um, and so once, these, once you start creeping up in avalanche danger, it starts costing the railroad certainly money because it's requiring more people to be on scene. And, um, and then eventually we'll start just running one train through the canyon at a time and busing uh, the Amtrak folks around. And um, well, I, didn't, I didn't realize this was a passenger 
railway too. Yeah, sorry. It's wow. um, it's a very heavily used rail line. And in the same canyon is U.S. Highway 2, which is the northernmost east-west route in the U.S., which sees a lot of traffic each day also. Um, the rail has, it's a, John F. Stevens Canyon is about four and a half miles long, and there's about 15 avalanche paths of size that affect the rail. Um, the bigger paths are generally 2,000, 2,500 vertical feet. Um, the biggest paths are a little over 3,000. Um, and we watch those. Unfortunately, the highway is hit by a variety of other paths, and the highway department does not have their, their own forecasting situation and so they they rely a little bit about with the flathead avalanche center but they uh probably someday they should get their own program going up there wow have so, they had any significant accidents or incidents um there has been some some good stuff nobody has been killed on the road um in 1979 we had a big one come down and took out a bridge took out the entire bridge and we're not sure where it is and uh it disrupted traffic for a couple of months they had to close until they can put another bridge in um up there the the big events seem to only occur every three to five years mm -hmm. and so people get a little complacent when things aren't happening um but when it all comes together up there just because of the terrain and the weather patterns it can like a lot of places, it can go off pretty big. Yeah. Well, today was my first day in, in Glacier National Park and and driving along and going to the Sun Road. I mean, it, there's some massive paths up there, and I'm sure what you're talking about for the railroad and, and Highway 2 is not unlike what you see up there. I mean, the train is just of a huge scale. It is. Um, it is. You know. I'm sure capable of D4s and, and D5s even. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so now you're working as a forecaster for the Flathead Avalanche Center. Um, could you talk a little bit about the history <laughs> of, of the Avalanche Center here? Because I know it's grown quite a bit. And maybe speak to why it's grown, how it's grown, um, some general characteristics of, of the snowpack you're working with, stuff like that. Okay, sure. Um, the original Avalanche Center up here was called... Glacier Country Avalanche Center, GCAC, and it was a Forest Service Avalanche Center, started in the 1980s, and Stan Bones and Tony Willits ran that, and I thought they did a pretty good job. Unfortunately, the funding was very poor, and these gentlemen had other jobs with the forest, and so they had to split their time between their other job and the snow job, and so they could only put out a couple advisories a week. Um, eventually they retired after a number of years and there was a bit of a change in the forest in terms of more money was being allocated for the Avalanche Center. The Avalanche Center changed its name to Flathead Avalanche Center and we developed a friends group and the friends group has been very successful, raised a lot of money. Um, and they actually are paying our third forecaster um, their yearly salary. So three years ago, they went from two forecasters, 
putting out a product four days a week to three forecasters putting out a product seven days a week. Um, this coming year, we're hoping actually we can hire a fourth forecaster. We'll see how that goes. So it's it's really changed. Mm. Um, we we forecast for an area that's approximately 3,000 square kilometers, which comes out to something like 740,000 acres, a big area. Um, six different mountain ranges, um, parts of them or all of them. Um, we're entirely within Flathead County. Um, so it's mostly the eastern side of Flathead County is our area that we forecast for. Um, the eastern side of Flathead County consists of uh, the west side of Glacier National Park and a big portion of the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Unfortunately, a lot of those areas are really inaccessible in the winter. They see very little visitation. So we actually don't even, that's not even in our area, a lot of that. Um, we do forecast for part of Glacier Park, the southern portion along Highway 2 and also Central Glacier Park. But for the most part, most of Glacier is we just don't, we can't get to. Um, interesting snowpack around here. Um, they classify us as intermountain. However, um, we have aspects of both maritime and continental. So we certainly get some warm, moist storms coming in off the Pacific. We do get rain here occasionally. Um, rain will go up to um, the ridge top levels. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we are getting some uh, wet avalanches. Um, but more of our concern, it seems like as we, this rain layer develops a, a crust in the snowpack, which will develop facets around the crust and it'll get buried and cause us headaches down the road. Um, we do have in part of our area, a fairly deep and warm snowpack. Um, other portions of our area, like the Eastern portion, it's more of a thinner, colder continental snowpack. Um, however, is that, is that just, sorry? sorry to interrupt, but yeah. is that just due to elevation bands or no, it's more, um, the location, uh -huh. the actual location. Um, it's kind of a, a wide area. And I think partly because we're close to the continental divide, we get a lot of cold air spilling over the divide. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't make it to all of our mountain ranges and it just kind of affects the Eastern mm -hmm. portion more so at least. Um, sometimes we do have these real strong cold air masses that will drop down out of Alberta um, and envelop the entire area here. And sometimes they're only with us for a few days. Sometimes they're with us for seven to 10 days, super cold weather. And it's accompanied by east through north winds, um, which is the opposite wind flow of what we normally have here. So we'll get a lot of scouring of what used to be good snow and um, pretty much nobody around here likes these arctic blasts um, you don't really want to be outside during them pretty miserable um, believe it or not i think people would prefer rain to these arctic blasts um, at least you could ski in the rain a little bit but um, these arctic blasts probably the only interesting thing about them or good thing about them you can watch them erode cornices which is pretty fun to to observe yeah um, we get some pretty good sized cornices here but when these arctic fronts come through with some sustained strong winds for a week or so these cornices shrink rapidly 
which is something I haven't seen before, which is kind of neat. Hit the rewind button. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yep. That's pretty wild. Yeah. So kind of a dynamic spot. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and your user group, what's, what's kind of your general uh, population? You have mechanized users, yep. a lot of backcountry skiers. You know, you have Whitefish Mountain mm -hmm. Resort right. right up the road. Yep. People. Yeah, so you can probably divide it up into three different groups. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a large motorized contingent. There's um, two major ranges here that um, are wonderful for snowmobiling. They get a lot of deep snow. Um, no wilderness areas they can have at it. Um, it's all, they're also great for skiing. The problem is they're just long approaches. So people generally don't like skin into these ranges too often. Um, so big motorized use in a, in a couple of ranges. Um, the rest of the area is mostly non-motorized because it's either in the park or it's in a wilderness, a forest service wilderness. And most of the terrain we have is advanced terrain so it kind of limits um folks for going into the backcountry i guess mm -hmm. um we certainly have a lot of advanced skiers around but the problem here is you have to start at a low elevation and you got to kind of pay the price of admission to get to the good stuff and so you need to make a commitment you know you need to climb a good three thousand feet to to really enjoy a good tour around here um so there's definitely a, a fair crowd that does that, but certainly um, compared to other areas, of, you would consider it a fairly small crowd. Um, our third group would be the folks that are recreating off the ski area. Mm -hmm. um, the ski area has a lift that goes right up to a ridgeline. You basically ski about 50 feet off the lift. You can duck the rope. We have an open boundary policy up there. And you're in this Canyon Creek area, um, avalanche terrain. You ski down through this avalanche terrain down to a groomed road, snowmobile road. And on the other side of that groomed snowmobile road is, again, good um, steep avalanche terrain with skiing there. And we get a lot of people skiing off the area in, in this Canyon Creek zone without of course proper gear without any knowledge just making lap after lap having a good time but not really understanding what they're getting into right um and there has been accidents there in the past and a fatality there, this last year right? there was a fatality this year yep yeah. uh-huh um and there will be you know fatalities in the future the problem is people ski down into the canyon the, onto this road and then they walk up this road beneath all of these big avalanche paths so somebody who's either high marking or skiing could set off a slide and bury the people on the road and that has happened mm. in the past with fatalities um does the ski resort use specific gates to get out of their boundary or is it just kind of duck nope. the rope wherever yep. you want yep. you can, it's an open boundary you can duck wherever you want there are signs up there yeah um, they try to do the best they can, but yeah, there's, yeah, have at it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to Montana. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do, Montana. <laughs> uh, so does the Avalanche Center, you know, you mentioned that you're forecasting for the park a bit. I'm, I'm interested to 
Do you guys have a good sense of how many backcountry ski users are getting in the park in the winter and what sort of, you know, it seems like it's probably pretty hard to get pretty far back there. Um, but if you could talk about that and then, you know, if some of the collaboration that you're doing with the park and any other entities uh, putting out forecasts. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's really not that much use in the park. Mm -hmm. Um most of the park, if you want to go ski in the winter, you really do need to make it a multi-day trip. Mm -hmm. And that really cuts down on the use. There are some spots, certainly, that you can do uh, day trips on. Um, but the park doesn't see as much use as, say, like the Flathead Range, which parallels Highway 2. And you can just park at the road and scoot up and ski something big and ski right back down to your car. Mm -hmm. Um some of the collaboration we have is we have a great um, working relationship with the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Avalanche Safety Team. Um, they're wonderful to work with, give us great information. Um, the Whitefish Mountain Resort Ski Patrol, same thing. We work with them closely. The Whitefish Mountain Resort in general um, works with us well in terms of allowing us to teach a lot of our avalanche classes up there. So they'll provide lift tickets. Um, they'll provide a room for us to teach in. Um, very nice of them to do that. And they've been doing that for years. Um, so those are probably our main collaborators. Yeah, so speaking of kind of community outreach and education, what, is, what does that program look like? Yeah, it's Center? huge. Nice. It's huge. It's enormous. It's, um, it's actually... Um, it's a major challenge for us, but it's a good challenge to have. Um, last year, we believe we taught over 1,600 students. And that, that could be anything from grade school up you know, through adults. And unfortunately, we're having to say no to a lot of folks, which we hate to do, but we just don't have the instructor um, ratio to be able to teach these these classes. So that is actually a big challenge of that we're trying to figure out. So we're looking to the community to help us out. And we're hoping there's going to be some folks out in the community that want to get involved with becoming an avalanche educator. And they could possibly take a, the load off of us a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, right now, though, we're really tapped out. We utilize pretty much anybody in the area who is in the avalanche field. And of course we have other jobs, so we can't teach seven days a week, but um, it's a wonderful program. It's, it's ex exploding leaps and bounds. Um, people are screaming for level ones around here. It's just unbelievable. As soon as, as soon as we offer a level one, and this is not an exaggeration, it can be filled in five or 10 minutes. Wow. Honestly, it's, we run them through the, the ski area. The ski patrol has a nonprofit. And so we run them through them and they don't take reservations until the first day of the ski season. And basically, so starting at 8 a.m. and by 8.05, 8.10, all the classes are full. It's, wow, it's, unbelievable. it's unbelievable. And people, you know, people are obviously get upset because they're like, I really want to take that class. But we just, yeah, we can only offer so much. So that's a, that's a big challenge that we need to somehow figure out. And are there any other providers in the Flathead Valley? Like, There's not. Yeah. You know, we, um, 
a collaborator collaborator that I forgot to mention was um, the Flathead Valley Community College. We work with them, mm-hmm. but we we utilize their facilities. But it's but it's us that are teaching. Um, but the, it's a great collaboration with those guys. So so these are mostly avalanche awareness courses and rec level ones that meet correct. the AAA standards. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And we do a, what's called an intro to avalanches, which is very popular. It's one night at the college classroom and then one full day hands-on up at the ski area. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It works out nice. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there's, it sounds like there's plenty of room to grow in that realm and uh, good luck moving forward with that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Mark, what is your, what is your day to day experience look like as an avalanche forecaster? And maybe you could speak to, you know, the most challenging part of your job and then maybe the most rewarding. Oftentimes when I ask this question, people, people state the obvious of, well, just being outside in a snowy environment with maybe your skis on your feet or something, but. Sure. Um, um day to day job. I, I work for the Avalanche Center four days a week. Um, the, my Monday of that work week, um, I'll get up early and I'll communicate with the forecaster who's writing the advisory that morning. We have a little system where we we contact them and we talk. We kind of collaborate and help that person get through, get the advisory out. And once the advisory's out, um, then I generally head out into the field if I'm not teaching a class that day. So go out for a tour, um, obviously in a, in a location that we haven't been to in a little while, and collect data, take a lot of photos, maybe make a video, come back, edit it, um, put it out as an observation on our webpage. And then the next three days, I'm actually writing the advisory. Um, so I, I try not to be too rushed in the morning, so I start about 3.30, writing the advisory, try to get it out by 7.00. And then once that's out, um, again, I'm going out either touring or going uh, teaching a class. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of my work week. Um, rewards, um, I guess a couple different ones that I really enjoy is when I'm teaching a cl- um, avalanche education classes in the field and when people are finally getting it and they're really like, understanding what what i'm talking about or what they should be looking for i really enjoy that because people are psyched because they may read the book ahead of time and they may have their friends kind of sort of tell them what they're supposed to be looking for or doing but the classes we teach we really like to get people into into or near avalanche terrain and really make them work their way through it, get out of a jam and people love it. And so I really, I enjoy that. Um, I also enjoy, um, when people approach me who I sort of vaguely know, um, but they thank me for the product that the avalanche center is putting out. And I especially like that when these people are folks that I assume don't read the advisory. There's a lot of folks around that kind of will call them old school that aren't really interested in the advisory. At least that's what I'm assuming. But when they approach me, I'm, I'm shocked and I'm, I'm really happy. So I, I, I kind of like that. Um, challenges that we have, um, probably one of them is just um, making inroads with the motorized crowd. 
That's a tough one. Um, tough only because, you know, I think everybody in the, uh, on the center feels as though we don't have the street cred to be, to kind of hang with those folks per se. Um, so, you know, we're, we're a bunch of snow skiers that snowmobile occasionally, you know, as opposed to, yeah, as opposed to snowmobilers that maybe ski occasionally. So, um, we're just trying to make inroads with them. Um, this past year we offered the first ever level one motorized course in the Flathead Valley. We were psyched about that. Um, we had a couple of folks from a local shop help us out teaching, um, which is wonderful. They, they certainly have the cred. Um, so it was nice working with them and because everybody really respects them. And so we're hoping we can expand on that. That's a big thing. It seems like we can hit the skiers pretty well, but there's such a large motorized contingent that we're just trying to, like I said, make some sort of inroads with them. Sure. Yeah, whether it's getting observations from them or just, you know, having them attend some avalanche classes, whatever. Yeah. Do you think the, the the motorized users in the area outnumber the ski tours? You know, here? I think I think they do. Yeah. yeah, yep, I think they do. Um, I you know I wish we had numbers on all this, but I just yeah. just don't. Sure. Yeah, but it, I think they do. Yeah. Um, another problem I think we have is just challenge. I guess is just trying to get people to send in observations. You know, we have a really large forecast area and it's really hard for us to you know hit everywhere and you know kind of a typical week like i might go to one mountain range and you know so i'm at one little spot in one big mountain range and i'm going to base my my forecast on that which is really tough um so we're we're working on it we're trying to get people to submit obs but it's you know, I've heard some other forecasters say that, and this is this is great for anybody listening, is even uh, observations of, of good stability is an observation. And I think people kind of get scared off, the public gets scared off if they maybe don't know some of the jargon or um, they don't have a pit to submit. And so they're not going to, even though they were out for hours in the field exactly they don't send anything in because they don't have a pit. I've, right. I've done that before yep. like, ah, i don't really have anything right well no you do if you're paying attention to your surroundings yeah, you exactly just, um you know uh, observations of good stability are just as good observations to submit as <clears throat> observations of unstable snowpack conditions yeah, absolutely we'd love to hear that yeah. yeah yeah we try to tell people that right <laughs> And photos, you know, everybody's carrying a camera these days. Sure. Just yeah, just send us a photo of anything. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't just for the Flathead Avalanche Center. If you're sure. listening right now and you just <laughs> got home from skiing, send your photos to your Avalanche Center. Absolutely, they want them. <laughs> um. So you've been you've been an avalanche educator for many years. It sounds like. Um, what's your take on the current? And it sounds like you guys are kind of doing a little bit of your own thing up here in the Flathead mm-hmm. Valley. Um, what what other experiences do you have teaching? And then what is your take on the current transition of the ProRex split? How do you think it's going? Um, do you have any 
opinions on the bridge course that's going on for people transitioning into the pro track from the old paradigm, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been teaching for quite a while, you know, started back at birth ed. Um, so I feel like I've taught quite a few level ones and twos over the years. Mm -hmm. um, with this job, I'm definitely having to step back a little bit um, because of the time commitment with those. Um, although we're still teaching, you know, some level ones. Um, but I think the, um, the pro rec split is awesome. I think it's a wonderful thing. And I'm really glad that we're doing that. Um, I haven't had a lot of um, experience with the bridge course, so I can't really um, comment on that too much. But um, from what I, I see from the students, they're loving the, the rec course. Mm -hmm. yeah. It just seems to be the smart way to go. Yeah, a little more hands-on, just a little less science-y, which I think is, which is good. A little more approachable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it certainly seemed like we were kind of, as educators, kind of missing the mark on two different groups, and um, I as well see this as a super positive thing. Just yeah. trying to get kind of the, yeah, sure. the feel for the community, what people are thinking about that. So. Yeah. Um, no. What do you think? What do you think is the greatest challenge facing our our community, the snow and avalanche community these days? Um, well, in the foreseeable future, it might be funding. Mm. You know, I've I've worked um, for the the government for for pros or cons for uh, since 1984, and I've watched the budget go up and down, up and down, up and down, and. Um, right now, it seems like funding for avalanche centers across the West is really good. Um, seems like centers are expanding. Things are things are going in a positive direction, um, which is wonderful. But um, hate to be a pessimist, but I just just I don't think we can count on that always being like that. Um, which means we're going to have to look for other revenue sources and. Fortunately, like I said, here in the Flathead, we have a really strong friends group that's helping us out with that. Um, so for right now, we're holding our own and we're actually moving ahead. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm just afraid that, you know, maybe at some point money will be diverted somewhere and all mm -hmm. of a sudden we'll be scrambling. Right. Yeah. You know. Do you all do anything in terms of um, I know some friends groups offer memberships and you know i don't know if you guys have thought about that it, i don't i don't think you really get anything as a as a mm -hmm. member mm -hmm. but maybe a sticker or something but yeah it's, just a, it's a way for the community to kind of pledge their support to the friends group aside from maybe fundraising events right exactly we and we do have something like that mm -hmm. yep, something similar so yeah we have a bunch of fundraising events we have um there's certain grants in the community that we go after um that are quite lucrative um, we have a really nice relationship with glacier park and they give us a chunk of money each year um, and like i said the forest service has really stepped it up here in the flathead and also region wide um, providing a lot more money which is which is great but it, again i just hate to be a pessimist but <laughs> you never know it's a good yeah. thing to be aware of. Yes. So you're not yeah. blindsided by that right. if, if it comes down the road. Yep. <clears throat> uh, Mark, you got any you got any good stories or I always like to ask people about their pivotal moments in their career, whether they were you know, 
blinded by the light or <laughs> or maybe caught in, a, in an avalanche or had a close call or, or a friend was in a close call or something like that. Something that, that made you kind of rethink either your career or solidify something that, that you already knew. Sure. Um, there's certainly been you know, a handful of either close calls or avalanches that have involved me or friends. Um, but probably the, what I'm most affected by is, um, there's been three folks that I've worked with over the years, one at the Avalanche Center and then two in Glacier Park that suffered life changing injuries and just doing their day-to-day job. And so that's really stuck with me and, um, has made me kind of a, a safety conscious person, much more so than I, I think I ever used to be. And I'm sure I, I actually get to the point where I aggravate my coworkers with my safety. But after witnessing what happened to these three folks, I just don't want to see that again. And again, and they weren't doing anything reckless. It just, they were doing their job and things went wrong and things can go wrong in a hurry. And so, you know, just being aware of your surroundings and, being on your toes all the time is that's what it's taught me so i just try not to let my guard down sure yeah but um you know i'm really fortunate i've you know i've had some great jobs and i've worked with just amazing people and i know that sounds corny but i've worked with some really great folks that have taught me a ton and i'm really indebted to all of them yeah Mentorship sure is a, a big part of this game, isn't it? Is. It, it is. It is. Absolutely. It's good to keep that going and keep yeah. passing the torch. Any Anybody you'd like to throw a shout-out to? They may oh, they sure. Be listening yeah, absolutely. Point. Yeah. Don't want to forget anybody, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Ted Steiner, Blaze Reardon, Eric Peitch, Todd Hannon, Zach Guy, Chris Bilbrey. Yeah, wonderful folks. Adam Clark. Yeah, just a lot of great folks that have helped out along the years. Awesome. Well, Mark, yeah, I really appreciate you sitting down with me today and, and chatting about your career. It's, um, like I said in the beginning, you live in a beautiful area, and and I'm, I'm excited to get back up here when there's some snow and go out skiing with you. Heck yeah. <laughs> Be great to have you. All right. Well, until next time, cheers. All right. Thank you. Thanks for stopping by. Absolutely. Well, thanks for a great interview, Mark. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks again to TAS Gazex, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance Group for their support of the show. Thanks to you for listening. Follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Even though I've been kind of neglecting these accounts lately, I've kind of been taking a break from social media. But if you want to get in touch with me, try contact form from the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Please rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to. Send me feedback. Send me ideas for interviews. Send me stories of close calls and accidents. I want to share your stories. Music today was performed by Little Glass Men with The Magic Bullet and the Polish Ambassador with Angelita Instrumental featuring Ryan Herr. 
Tracks found on Free Music Archive and made possible through the Creative Commons license. Artwork for the show is done by Mike T. Thanks, T. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.